We always leap to this, well, how do we get the one solution? It's like, well, maybe there isn't one solution. The knowledge of how to solve a big problem is almost always decentralized, distributed. How do we best coordinate that? The best system is a polycentric system have many centers both vertically and horizontally and empower the people with the best knowledge of how to solve a problem to actually solve it. Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In today's episode, I join Will at the table as we chat with Dr. Brendan Markitala about subsidiarity. What is the principle of subsidiarity? How does it challenge conventional thinking about governance? And how can it help us solve some of the world's most wicked problems? This is one of my favourite episodes that we've recorded so far. I found it a really interesting conversation to be a part of, and it's actually had a real impact on how I think about policy and political theory, so I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Now, before we get into it, an apology. As you might be able to tell in my voice, or not, I finally caught COVID just the other week. That set us back a few weeks here at Pillar Talk, and at our sister publication, Statecraft, so this episode is reaching you later than promised. But don't fret, we've got heaps more exciting content to get out, including an upcoming episode with George Brandis, and we'll be doing our best to get back to a consistent upload schedule. A final point of housekeeping, for anyone interested in getting their writing into this year's print edition of Statecraft, We'll be accepting submissions until the end of October. That's for opinion pieces, analyses, satire, creative writing, whatever you like. After that, new submissions will roll over to next year's issue. And don't forget, there's a $100 prize to be won for this year's best article, and another 100 for our best new contributor, which could be you. Submissions, as always, can be sent to publications.uqpes at gmail.com, and you can find out more information at our website medium.com forward slash statecraft. Now, all that out of the way, I give you Dr. Brendan Markey-Tower on the principle of subsidiarity. Brendan Markey-Tower, thank you for joining us on Pillar Talk. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. So, we're here to talk today a bit about subsidiarity, but first, can you just tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, and maybe how you came to... Um, explore the idea of subsidiarity. So I, my day job is I'm a commercial banker with Westpac. Um, and so, of course, everything that I say Absolutely. here should be um, taken as an exact uh, and true replica of the thoughts of my employer. Um, that's a joke for the, legal, for the legal team. Um, but before that, I was an academic at UQ, uh, an academic economist. And back in the day, you guys are both PPE scholars, and I just wish that we had that back in my day because I really wanted to do a politics, philosophy, and economics yeah. type um, uh, degree because I was always really interested. I mean, obviously, I'm a finance services guy now, uh, and I've you know, always wanted to be in finance to some extent, um, but I was always fascinated by political economy and the philosophy mm. of economic thought. And so I did a lot of reading in that, and... It took me a long time to come across eventually in my doctoral studies the Institutional Economics of Eleanor Ostrom. And when I came across the Institutional Economics of Eleanor Ostrom, I started understanding 
the role of decentralization and um, knowledge distribution, which I was discovering at the same time in the work of Friedrich Hayek, mm. um, because I'd, I'd read the only paper you ever need to read on economics, uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, 1945, by Friedrich Hayek, which is all about how markets actually work. Right? Okay. Markets don't actually work by demand and supply. That's, that's like the least interesting thing about them. The most yeah. interesting <laughs> thing is how they're knowledge aggregators. Right, so they take distributed and decentralized knowledge that cannot possibly be known by any one individual and then accumulate that into solutions um, for satisfying basic needs. And what I found in Eleanor Ostrom's work is she was talking about how the same sort of thing happens not just in markets but across society overall. Mm. And in that work, she was rediscovering a very old concept that we'll talk about, um, which is the concept of subsidiarity, which is uh, how social action functions best when decision-making is disaggregated um, and uh, distributed to the lowest possible level, closest to the individual as possible. So that's how I came across it. And I, of course, became very interested in policy-making as well. Um, you know, and in that, uh, I got to know Gene Tunney, Mm-hmm. economist here in Queensland and read his book um, uh, on Queensland economic history and became really interested in state economic mm-hmm. policy, which is a woefully understudied area yeah. of economic thought, especially in Australia, yeah. um, but a super interesting area to study. And um, you, when you actually start digging into it, you realise just how important uh, state economic policy is for mm-hmm. the Australian economy. Mm. Can you explain briefly what you mean by state economic policy? So this is uh, economic policy that's determined at the state level rather than the federal level. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah. So um, this is, and it's, the reason it's understudied is because it doesn't really fit, I mean, it can fit into the standard economics that you do, fiscal policy, monetary policy, foreign exchange policy. Mm. Um, but really, uh, and look, Back in Australian history, back when we understood the Constitution, the Great Depression was actually addressed not by the federal government primarily, but by the states Mm. in the Premier's plan. And the states can do macro policy as well, as we saw during COVID. Each of the states adopted a slightly different Mm. macroeconomic uh, stimulus package. Mm. But most of the interesting state economic policy is done at micro level. Mm. So around the provision of healthcare, education, uh, one very big particular and controversial area is construction industry regulation, Mm. uh, digital services, contract law, all state level really. So that's sort of state economic policy is economic policy that's not determined at a federal level and it's a much broader mix of policies that are in play. So just before we go too deep into the policy world, so you talked about Eleanor Ostrom and Hayek. Beyond those people, what are the intellectual, cultural, social roots of subsidiarity? Do we see it before Ostrom um, in other thinkers or... Yeah, sure. Look, Ostrom was really just rediscovering something that had been around um, for at least 2,000 years uh, and giving it a slightly different name. So let's step back one level Mm. and consider what exactly is subsidiarity first and then we'll dig into where the intellectual thinking and and background Mm. to this came from. So what is subsidiarity? Um, It's the answer to a question that all societies everywhere face, which is how do we coordinate collective action? And what do we mean by collective action? We're we're talking about how do we solve problems like how do we care for the sick, the poor and the weak? How do we plan our cities? How do we manage our common reserves? How do we organise police, administer justice and all that sort of good stuff, right? Now, the sort of standard answer that you get from the left and the right, at least the authoritarian 
branch of that mm. is that you need some form of coercion by the state to implement a solution to these questions. Just one. Mm. State, right. usually meaning federal level. National government. Yeah, right? yeah. By the way, that usually comes branded with scientific trademark, right? <laughs> yeah, um, scientific socialism. Yeah, that, exactly. All that good stuff. Or Open space policy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and now, look, you can finesse all you want but at the end of the day that's the bare naked assumption of left and right authoritarianism is that there is a solution that should be coercively implemented by the state the libertarians on the other hand will tend towards denying tend toward not they don't always deny but they'll tend towards denying that there ought to be such a thing as collective action especially coercive collective action now subsidiarity steps outside that and says all right well let's adopt a principle for solving these collective action problems on a case by case basis and the principle that's adopted is that collective action should be coordinated i'm going to read this from my notes because <laughs> i need to get go it exactly it. right um, collective action should be coordinated by the individuals and groups closest to and most acutely affected by the problem requiring collective action so to put that it's slightly differently Mm-hmm. Collective decision making should be devolved to the lowest, quote unquote, so most the most local, local kind of level, the yeah. most local possible level of government or society. Mm-hmm. So let's put that in very practical terms. Yeah. What this principle says is that wherever possible, the overwhelming majority of decision making should be handled by the family. Where it can't be handled by the family, it should be handled by the community. Mm-hmm. Where it can't be handled by the community, it should be handled by local government. Where it can't be handled by local government, it should be handled by state government. And the very few problems that can't be handled by state government should be handled by federal government and almost no problems should be handled by international government. Mm -hmm. And what's important here, I want to drive this home and then we'll go into the intellectual roots of this. That decision-making authority has to be real decision-making authority. What do you mean by that? Yeah. (laughs) It can't be, if you'll pardon the French, it can't be bullshit decision-making authority, right? So each level must have teeth quote-unquote, okay. rights so, against the immediately higher level of, of collective So action. subsidiarity isn't opposed to some form of coercion? No, it's just saying that that should come down to the, to the lowest possible levels yeah, of society, sure. right? The coercion should be at the smallest unit of okay. society that is humanly possible. So um, much more granular decision-making, much less... Uh, Uniform, yeah, yeah, much less top-down, right? This is a very bottom-up view yeah. of how society mm-hmm. works. And is that authority also bottom-up? And this is the important thing. Yeah. It has to be bottom-up because otherwise the top levels can tyrannise the lower levels, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's why I say it has to be real decision-making authority. So, you know, ideally you've got state legislation that's entrenching the rights of local government. Mm. Um, and then you must have states with taxation power, real taxation power, and strong representation in the federal government, and mm. so on and so forth. So this is why, to give you a really concrete example of how not to do this, um, this is why the idea that's commonly floated in Australia that we should abolish the states and just have local or regional government is absolutely stupid. Because okay. if you had, the, if you actually implemented that, well, they do that in the UK, and local mm. governments in the UK have no power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just told they're given their marching orders by Whitehall and they're just implementing mm-hmm. Whitehall's um, authority. So you don't each level of government has to um, more rather than derive its rights from the higher level of government and have them devolved mm-hmm. um, sort of UK style mm-hmm. where the Scottish Parliament, for instance, is totally by, yeah. 
totally dependent on legislation passed by Westminster or the Northern Territory or ACT governments yeah. are totally dependent on legislation, uh, enabling legislation from the Commonwealth. Or councils dependent on state, state legislation. Yeah. You should have the superseding level of government formed by collective action by the lower levels, right? Mm. So this is why um, it's also sort of strictly speaking impossible to abolish the states in Australia because the federal government is a creation of the state governments, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or at least... High Court jurisprudence is going to kick me for that because t- um, technically Owen uh, engineers, damn engineers case reversed that jurisprudence because there's right. uh, but that's the idea. That was definitely the political theory of the Australian Constitution. That's definitely how the founders saw it. But right. wouldn't you say that uh, just to go slightly off track mm. that the federal level gives us some rights? So like in America the right to freedom of speech, right to bear arms. So it's kind of like overarching So that's enshrined in the federal constitution. But interestingly, the Bill of Rights was put in the federal constitution of the United States and only applied to the federal government Mm -hmm. um, until the passage of the 14th Amendment, which extended the first 13 to the state level. Right. Um, That was put in there by the Anti-Federalist Party. It was put in there as a concession to the Anti-Federalist Party in the early republic. uh, Because originally the Constitution didn't... That's why they called amendments. The original US Mm -hmm. Constitution didn't have the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. It was put in there later because the Anti-Federalists said the federal government is far too powerful. It's going to impede the rights of the states. Right. Mm -hmm. This thing that states have got together is going to tyrannise them. So that was actually put in there as a bulwark for states' rights. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay. As the states creating a counterweight to the power of the federal government. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so even though it's put in there, it's actually a state insertion, as it were. It's, it's actually a, an enhancement to subsidiarity. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah, some ways. In its, original juris, in its original jurisprudence, it was. Um, mm-hmm. Once the 14th Amendment was passed, it was more changed to a, this is a baseline level of rights that you can have. Right. But yeah, this is the, that idea of subsidiarity. We're taking, what is it? It's we're taking decision-making authority and we're devolving it to the lowest and lo- most mm-hmm. local possible level to the people who are most acutely affected by the problem. Okay, so what was before Eleanor Ostrom then? Yeah, so you're asking t- what are the intellectual and cultural, social... Yeah, things. yeah. Right, so I'll give you four schools of thought okay. on this. Um, the longest running roots, uh, which actually give it the name, are actually um, what came to be known as Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. Also, the Orthodox churches have a lot of thinking on this, right. but it was really formalised by the Catholic social teaching. Mm-hmm. But the most well-known roots of this thought are in the work of Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and yep. John Jay in, in the Federalist Papers, which right. are the addenda, the explanatory notes to the US Constitution. Mm-hmm. Another route, which is more strictly economic, you might hear of it, but you probably won't in a standard economics department, is the concept of competitive federalism um, developed by Charles Thibault. And then, of course, the most scientifically grounded, the most modern, quote-unquote, view on subsidiarity comes from Eleanor Ostrom and and her work on polycentric governance, and that won her the Nobel Prize. Does the competitive federalism kind of speak to, like, you know, voting with your feet? So if you don't like one area, then you just go over, so it's kind of like areas competing for each other? Yeah, that's right. It's a very economic approach to it. Yeah. And it's uh, the way that Thibault came up with it was he said, what is government really and collective action is solutions to the free rider problem. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's providing a public good. Yeah. How do we ensure that you get public good provision? Well, it's the same. You get it by the same way that you build better companies by competition. Mm-hmm. Except it's not competition for customers; it's competition for citizens. Okay. All right. So he actually was applying it at the local level, but it applies at all levels of subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. You get better public services and better public good provision by competition mm-hmm. between the governments. Now, fools in Australia, whenever this comes up, you know, in Australia, our competitive federalism, um, fools will say, "Oh, that just encourages a race to the bottom on tax." Yeah. Which is so stupid. It's mind-bendingly stupid because it's never over just one aspect of government competition is over bundles of government right it's not just over tax rates it's over tax and public good provision yeah Yeah. right and then which is why you don't see a bunch of people fleeing from california because they they like working in san francisco yeah well it's yeah so some people i mean there's there's a lot of exodus, but, like, but you don't get a complete collapse in the state, yeah. right? Because there's also not only is there competition over bundles, there's different preferences over bundles, yeah. right? So um, you get better satisfaction of more preferences, right? So some states race to provide the best high tax, high service mix, right? So think California and Victoria. Yeah. Um, others provide the best low tax, low service. Think Texas or Peter Beatty's Queensland. But some, which is really interesting now, are trying for efficiency. So high services but low taxes, Mm -hmm. um, a state that's run on the smell of an oil rag. So this is sort of what New South Wales is trying to do under um, Don Perrottet and Victor Dominello. So that's one. That's that's the competitive federalist view, right? Uh, That's the very economic view. Mm -hmm. If we step a little bit further out from that, you also have uh, the, the the federalist papers view. And this school of thought of subsidiarity is about subsidiarity not as an enabler of competition, but a means of minimising the threat of tyranny. Mm -hmm. So the Federalist Papers have just fought a war against Great Britain to get rid of the king. Actually, Parliament they wanted to get rid of, but they, you know king is a lot easier to fight against uh, and they say right okay central government seems to be necessary how do we design it so that we get um, minimum threat of tyranny mm-hmm. right so montesquieu teaches us that you need to divide power between the institutions of government so that one can only tyrannize the other by brute force mm-hmm. which is going to be pretty politically unpopular right mm-hmm. But judging Martin more against the, the executive branch. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and, and often, um, you know, the executive branch uh, marching against uh, the, the legislature and the judges, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the judges might like to yeah. <laughs> march against the others, but the, how many divisions has the judge? Um, <laughs> so they all kind of have like a grip on each other. Yeah, each has rights yeah. against the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what the genius of the Federalist Papers was to realise that you can do this vertically as well as horizontally, right? Right. So Montesquieu says Mm. divide between judiciary, executive, legislative. The federalists say, well, do that, but also then divide it between states and federal and give as great a powers as possible to the states Mm -hmm. rather than the federal government, right? Because if you're going to give tyrannous powers like police, in particular police... Um, the administration of justice, the provision of, of social welfare, the provision of health education, the setting of educational standards, mm-hmm. these sorts of powers, you don't want them given by a, a central government. You distribute them to a yeah. lower level of government. Where they're more accountable. Yeah, and has, it's more organic but also has less power, right? Less coercive power. Yeah. Right. 
Um, so that's the Federalist Papers, right? But that's cool. These are very instrumentalist views of government, right? Very sort of mechanical. Mm. The oldest view on subsidiarity is a much more organic view, and it comes from Catholic social teaching. And this starts with the tradition of virtue ethics. So let's put it in a syllogism. Yeah. Human beings must have freedom, read opportunity, to pursue that way of life which mobilises their individual talents excellently in conformity with the natural law. Within that mm. is our pursuit of excellence in providing for the common good, right? Mm-hmm. S- providing solutions faced by the collective. Right. No. We've actually provided those opportunities which are necessary for people who actually develop virtue. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah but also the pursuit of virtue in, in the provision of those goods. Right, okay. So, right. both ways. This is quite a different uh, view of freedom compared to, like, say, Nozick's view of yeah. freedom, where yeah, it's exactly. property rights, whereas yeah. this is more... Um, positive. Yeah, p- positive view of freedom Very where there's yeah. um, scaffolding. Exactly. The yes. institutions that make us free. And it's less instrumental, less mechanistic, and more organic. Mm-hmm. It's right. less how do we... How do we, um, how do we best solve problems and more how can we do things which are conforming with what it means to be human. Yeah, and how do we um, structure our world such that flourishing occurs mm. And, mm. and eudaimonia is the ancient Greek untranslatable yeah. word um, is is obtained by the greatest number of people in pursuit of all things both individual and collective mm. now the knowledge to do that the knowledge that you need to pursue the common good excellently becomes more perfect closer to the individual or the community in question Mm-hmm. So decision-making becomes more conducive to flourishing the more it is devolved to the individual or community, and therefore you need subsidiarity. And because the Congress, it's more attuned to that community's particular needs. Makes better use of their knowledge, right? It right. enables okay. the use of that knowledge better. Whereas if you try and aggregate that knowledge at a much higher level, then you're going to get much more dissolution of knowledge kind of thing. Yeah, right. less use of knowledge, right? It's, yeah. um, mm. The more that you centralise decision-making, the less... Um, or the the more that that individual and community knowledge cannot be accounted for in a collective action. Right. Because I know know that my community really needs better education standards, Mm -hmm. but this community over here really needs action on crime. Yeah. Um, And that community is larger, so they're more represented, so my problems go unsolved. Yeah, and maybe this is a farming community, maybe this is a civic community, and they're very different kinds of people. That's actually a really important divide in Australia, right? Country Mm -hmm. versus city. Yeah. Yeah. Different preferences, different different, um, circumstances, different problems that are being faced. Yeah. And the more you implement a centralised solution, the less you can account for all those different um, preferences, knowledges, circumstances, okay. and the more coercion you need to implement a solution, the less human flourishing you have. So that's probably the oldest um, view. Mm. But then jump forward to the most recent view. It's a very similar... Um, this is, if you want, um, the more scientific or yeah. modernist view, which is the view of polycentric governance, and that's Eleanor Ostrom. And she really provides this view of how collective actions problems are solved that is very empirically grounded. Mm, So the way she developed this view that subsidiarity and localism, polycentric governance, right, many centres of decision-making, not just one, um, she developed that view that that's the best by observing how do environmental problems get solved, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, ironically, like, that's where everyone says, oh, we need centralised government to solve this. We need the federal government Mm. to have an environmental policy. Um, well, actually, Ostrom went around the world and found that 
whenever the a higher level of government intervened in a problem of governing the commons, right, a common pool resource, it actually destroyed the institutions that had developed mm. to effectively govern that common pool resource. Probably um, worth just putting that briefly. So a common pool resource is something... Um, could, you, could you define that? So it's like in the old village, you had a collective... You had a common pasture. Yeah. Right? There's one out here at Oxley, uh, a little experimental one, where no oh, yeah, no yeah. one person owns it. It's commonly held. Like a community yeah. garden. Or a community a garden, store. community pasture, um, but also a waterway. Yeah. All right. Um, or a, or a pond. Air. Yeah. Or a, a spring. Uh, mm-hmm. Clean air. You know anything that is that helps the community flourish, helps the community um, live, but is not owned by any one individual. Yeah. yeah. And um, do we typically talk about my consumption of a common pool resource affects your consumption because I'm taking yeah. away from it? But we, we can't stop each other from... from yeah, yeah. So that's the, de- the definition of a common pool resource is rivalrous but not excludable. Yeah. Mm. So my consumption of it stops your consumption, but I can't stop you from, from consuming mm. the common pool resource. Which leads to the tragedy yeah. of the yeah. commons. Exactly. Yeah. And what Eleanor Ostrom found was that when she went around, like if you read Jeff Hardin, um, yeah. we need the one child policy, we need you know, the Chinese... Communist Party to come along and implement a one-child policy to stop you from from uh, from destroying the commons. Well, actually, Eleanor Ostrom found that it was that common pool resources were often very effectively governed. If you had a centralised government or a high level of government step in and take control of it, mm. it would break down the evolution of cooperation that had emerged and the institutions that had emerged from the community to govern the resource. And they were enforced by something much more powerful than police looking over your shoulder. They were enforced by the community watching over everyone's shoulder. You mentioned that, um, you know, no uh, international organisations can solve problems, but what about something like pollution, like air pollution? Wouldn't that be something that could be better solved at the international level? And, And it's appropriate for the international level or would proponents of subsidiarity disagree with that well that gets into the question of you know when when does the principle break yeah, down yeah cool. now the problem That's with right the That's problem right with that so the the issue with that is again one of circumstances mm-hmm. knowledge preferences mm-hmm. an international approach presupposes that there's a certain degree of uniformity Okay. If you then start saying, well, okay, well, it's, oh, well that's, that's not a problem. We'll, we'll just tailor the international approach. It can be different across different communities. Okay, well, that's a step towards subsidiarity anyway. Yeah. Right? But then why would we decide that at the international level if we're going to have different applications of a, a global uh, approach to air pollution? Well, why would we decide that all in New York? Why would we not devolve that decision-making to people who have better knowledge of how to implement a solution in their particular mm-hmm. region? So okay. we might still have a binding agreement made by lots of decentralised nodes, but those nodes would still have the decision-making power to actually... Implement uh, a solution. Right, right. okay. So we, st- we still might see um, states like, making agreements at an international level to... Combat, for example, air pollution. Or at a national change. level, we can say, well, look, we are going to, we're going to solve the problem, but each state has the, the right to approach that in its own way. But here's another okay. problem. 
This gets to some of how can subsidiarity solve some of the, of the world's most wicked problems. You'd argue that it's not only something that can solve those problems, it's the only way to solve those problems. Why? Mm. Because okay. we all disagree viciously on mm. solutions to yep. something That's like climate change. Wickedly, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you're trying to strike an agreement at a national level, let alone a global level, how much time are you wasting building consensus and, uh, and, and trying to win power and coerce everyone to a particular solution? Mm-hmm. How much better to take over a more local level and start working within it, right? So stop wasting time trying to get consensus or coerce a solution at a national level start going to local state governments and start experimenting with solving problems and when you start finding solutions start broadcasting that and say well okay well here's the solution what do you guys think Mm -hmm. Um, here's the solution well this seems to be working really well to get a decrease in air pollution that's coming from us without impeding you know our our outcomes uh, economically or socially well, it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. How about you adopt it, right? And so this goes to, to Eleanor Ostrom's point, right, which is there's two benefits. Broadly, um, knowledge of how to solve collective action problems is decentralised and disaggregated. And we always leap to this, well, how do we get the one solution? It's like, well, maybe there isn't one solution. Yeah. The knowledge, is, the knowledge of how to sol- solve a big problem is almost always decentralized, distributed. How do we best coordinate that? Mm-hmm. Um, and Eleanor Ostrom says the best system that, to do that is a polycentric si- system. Have many centers both vertically and horizontally mm-hmm. um, and empower the people with the best knowledge of how to solve a problem to actually solve it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Unlock that knowledge that's mm-hmm. sitting in individual people, right? That cannot... Po- and by doing that, you take account of vastly more, much like how markets work, you take account of vastly more information than can, be, than can be accounted for by any one national or international group of bureaucrats, right? So there's two benefits from that. Yeah. There's a static benefit to subsidiarity and polycentric governance. You get much better solutions by default to problems because you've got better knowledge and you've actually got better incentive to implement the solution because the yeah. decision makers are actually living in the communities mm-hmm. and responsible to the communities um, that they're implementing solutions in. But you also get a dynamic benefit. Mm. You get more experimentation. Yeah. Right? You get more learning. And polycentric governance and subsidiarity, if you want to put it this way, it's literally the scientific method applied <laughs> to governance. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. let's try out a bunch of stuff. Let's see what works by running, in Australia, six, or in America, 50, ideally thousands of experiments in how to solve problems, and we'll each learn from each other. Well, that solution might not work. That solution for Victoria might not work in Queensland. That solution for Nevada might not work in Maine. Yeah, for those of you who don't it's, know, it's, it's the right? <laughs> it's a scientific socialism you've always been looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's scientific without the socialism, right? <laughs> yeah, because socialism is that centralized system. Yeah, right. Sure. And even or you can't have decentralized. Socialism. Well, but then you're sort of breaking the socialist ideal, right? Because yes, I'll grant you that in theory, 
the, have like the, the idea of the anarcho-syndicalist. And, and yeah, but that's anarcho-syndicalism and less socialism. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Socialism is is the common owns of the of the uh, means of production. Yeah, sure. And the dictatorship of the proletariat. That's proletariat, not proletariat for this particular region. Mm. Yeah, sure. When they actually implemented it, you 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 find that wherever, yeah. If there is a quote unquote socialist government, yeah. it only ever works by kind of devolving power yeah. back to the local level. I loved um, subsidiarized socialism. Really. Yeah, well, China. That's how China selects its members of the Politburo. Yeah, right. right. China often, uh, China has a very ironically strong federalist system because they use governorships as ways, of, as testing grounds for mm. senior party members. Right. Now, that gets you a form of government that is, granted, that system of government is evil. <laughs> but it sure is effective at getting yeah. solutions, right? Um, so there's some truth to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, talking about socialism, markets and all that, would you consider um, subsidiarity of left or right-wing principle or does it kind of cut across the spectrum? So we'd say that it's an enabler of both but also an obstacle to both. It's kind of not really one or the other. Yeah, like um, Austrian's book is quite aptly named Beyond the States and Markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, it's, you could equally call it Beyond Left and Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you want to put Left and Right into those yeah. Yeah. terms. Look, what it fundamentally is, is that it's an anti-authoritarian mm-hmm. approach, right? And so in that sense, it's an obstacle to both because both Left and Right are kind of fundamentally authoritarian at their root, right? Yeah. Um, they need power to to coerce conformity to, in the case of the left, a universal humanity, whatever the hell that means, usually yeah. the party, um, or on the right, to the throne and altar. Mm. Right? Whereas subsidiarity says, okay, you can exercise coercive power, but it has to be within a certain locality. Subsidiarity mm. limits the exercise of that power to a particular locality. But... In that limitation, it also unlocks... It's an enabler of both left and right. Yeah, because you can get, like, uh, left-wing communities or right-wing communities. Exactly. Yeah, right. So you're no longer engaged in this titanic struggle over Mm. great state policy for the whole nation. Mm. You're working to persuade your local community that a more left-wing or right-wing approach to a Mm. problem is best. And so in that sense, it's really... an obstacle that also is an enabler. It breaks up power and mm. distributes it. Mm. So the power is ironically um, both limited and granted mm. to people. Uh, last time we met, you mentioned that Nassim Taleb said the best form of governance is libertarian at the top, communist at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that? so that's a throwaway line, right? It's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a bon mot that um, at the federal level you should be libertarian, at the, at the state level you should be uh, social democrat at the local level you should be communist right okay, okay. right communist just meaning coercive yeah well but coercive. a lot more power yeah right? yeah, and, yeah or yeah. that power extending to a lot more things right mm-hmm. um and that sort of makes sense because you want to enable people the closer you get to the local community and uh, the more your vote matters right yeah sure um and the more you can influence that policy you're one mm-hmm. voice in 25 million in the federal government and you have only have 150 members of the House, which is an electorate size of, I think, about 250,000. Mm, yeah. um, a little bit less than that, about 220,000. So you're one voice in 220,000. And less you're a Tasmanian. 
Uh, but then you're talking Senna. I love talking Senna. <laughs> yeah, Tasmanian hair. <laughs> yeah, and actually, by the way, Senna, right? That's love that's, the, that's yeah. supposed to be that's supposed to be a bulwark against. Yeah. This explicit, Paul Keating famously says it's unrepresentative swill. Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. Because Very it's representative of Northwest Tasmania, that's well. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be, well, but it's supposed to be mm. um, enabling the distribution of power back to a level that is more local. Mm. At the state level here, you've got 90 members for 5 million people. Yeah. Right? A lot more representative. Um, and as you devolve power back to those lower and lower levels you get more you should be getting more and more of a say over more and more uh, over a government that has more and more control over your life right so at the federal level that you get very little say over the national curriculum mm-hmm. right yeah yeah that's 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 an absurd thing that there should be one curriculum for for 25 million people with all of their different preferences all of their diversity all of their different circumstances that is something that is much better handled by state governments that can take better account of different preferences different circumstances different knowledge how heterogeneous do you just getting your thoughts on this how heterogeneous do you think people actually are in that sense because certainly with education like it seems like no matter where you are in the world there are certain things that should be on some kind of national curriculum whether it's uh, basic literacy and numeracy are you suggest that i i'm saying that basically most people seem seem to need these skills wherever they find themselves well by your judgment yeah sure and you Um, get actually a lot of disagreement even over that right so um even in us in, in matters so simple as literacy and numeracy, mm. what does literacy mean? True. Right? Does that mean that I'm learning Shakespeare? There'd be a lot of challenges to that. Now, I personally think you should be learning Shakespeare in the King James Version um, as, as, the, as the pinnacle of the English language. But that's my opinion. And that's I think, literature rather than... But that's part of the skills training, which is but different to... that informs... That mm. informs all the levels back down to the basic literacy and numeracy. What yeah. that yeah, that's aiming at a a particular highest good mm. is your literacy program. Mm-hmm. What is that highest good that it should aim for? Should it be purely instrumental? Should we be aiming to get like just a five, a fifth grade level of English so mm. that you can basically order food or um, sign a government form? Mm. Um, but then, okay. But well, of course, you, you can say that um, these bare necessities, that's what can be done at a higher level and that added. Um, well, you can then at a lower that, level, you, you have. But why would you not trust that to emerge from okay. a lower level up? Right? Nice. Look at, for instance, just today, uh, just yesterday, plastic bags are now banned nationwide in Australia. That was not achieved through a... Now, I, I don't particularly like that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was not achieved by a national agreement. That was just Queensland... I think Queensland started and each of the states started adopting mm-hmm. that standard slowly and saying, well, it seems okay, it doesn't seem too bad a cost yeah. and it seems to have a... You know, it seems to tick the boxes for the you know, inner city electorates that don't like plastic. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have some environmental benefits to be more charities. <laughs> well, that's what you think. Right, um, you know that's fine, um, and eventually New South Wales got it. So that's an example of how you get an emergence of a national standard sure. from uh, from a bottom up. Yeah, and each state has a different, slightly different implementation of that standard. Look at 
uh, you know, driver's licenses. Yeah. There is actually no, well, there is now a national standard for heavy, heavy vehicles, mm-hmm. but there, but each state has a certain minimum standard and they get it by looking at, well, that kind of works there in that state, that kind of works in that state, what are our preferences, um, you know, take Queensland, for instance, very different mm-hmm. state to Tasmania, there are certain standards that we agree on. Mm-hmm. But Queensland's a vastly different state with vastly different transport needs yeah. to Tasmania. How do we incorporate that in mm. to, um, to our road licensing mm. laws? Um, so when people say, well, we need a, a common standard, well, uniformity is actually not a strength. Mm. Right? Um, it's not a strength in terms of reflecting the diversity of the community or the diversity of populations. But it's also not a strength evolutionarily, right? You don't get experimentation that tries to find different solutions, mm-hmm. right? So it goes back to that static and dynamic uh, value from subsidiarity. You can get better solution. You can not only get more preferences satisfied, more knowledge accounted for, more circumstances addressed mm-hmm. by devolving power. You can also get better solutions better common solutions at a national level by experimentation and adoption of experiments. Mm. And now a brief word from our platinum sponsor, KPMG. KPMG provide a range of professional services for business, non-profits and government, including consulting on the design and implementation of key government policies. They offer two programs that might interest you, their 12-month graduate program and their four to eight week vacation program for students in their penultimate year. Both are fantastic opportunities for anyone interested in consulting or in building their skills at solving complex policy problems. For more information, check out this episode's description or reach out to the UQPPE Society and we can put you in touch with one of our contacts at KPMG. So, from what you're saying, subsidiarity seems like it should be a leading principle in public policy. What's the strongest argument that you've seen against subsidiarity? So it's not uniformity, mm-hmm. right? And the, with the one that we were talking about. Because yeah. um, uniformity is bad, mm-hmm. actually, for all the reasons that we've discussed. Yep. No diversity, sure. little experimentation, vastly less preferences and knowledge is satisfied the higher you go mm-hmm. um, in the centralisation of power. The only, it's only a good argument insofar as it feeds into the actual real best argument against subsidiarity, which is efficiency. Right. Okay. right. So there's two aspects yeah. to efficiency. There's economies of scale and transaction costs. Yeah. So a centralised point of access contact um, can, emphasis can, uh, allow cheaper coordination of collective mm-hmm. action. Right. So let's take economies of, ex- of scale. An example of that is the ATO. Right? So yeah. most people don't need to go to the Office of State Revenue um, to, to file taxes. I mean, a lot of businesses do. Some people do. Um, but, you know, the ATO provides that one centralised point yeah. um, that you do all your taxes within. Mm-hmm. Um, or something that Victor Dominello, the Minister for Customer Service in New South Wales, he's been working on... The Minister for Customer Service? Yeah. <laughs> That's such a, yeah. yeah. I, I saw that title and I was like, what is that? It's, <laughs> a, bit of a, it's a bit of a gimmick, right? But it, it's, all, it's really all about efficiency. How do we... Do, how right, do we okay. deliver efficiency across sure. government? Interesting. And he's been working on, this is a little bit more morbid, but um, a federally organised portal for notification of death. Right. <laughs> right? So yeah. if somebody dies, how do we notify all the relevant state, territory, local, federal government agencies? Right, yeah. Well, let's put one portal at a federal level that pushes notifications to all the state, 
local and territory governments to update their records when necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. Sure. Now, people will sometimes say, well, uh, you should provide a common market as well. As, as, and so this is the justification for the corporation's power. Um, in Section 51 of the Australian Constitution, there's an equivalent one in, in, in um, the United States. And what's that power? It's the corporation's power, the power of the Commonwealth or the federal government um, to legislate for uh, corporations, essentially to provide a common market, common regulatory structure. Okay. Yeah. For interstate. Yeah. Oh, inter- it's often called the Interstate Commerce Clause in the US. Right. So it so, makes it easier for companies to navigate regulatory yeah. standards across states. Yeah. Right. Can you guess what the double-edged st- sword there is? No idea. <laughs> well, double-edged sword is it also allows economies of scale. It allows companies, companies to, to get bigger. make it easier. Right. To, okay. It makes it a lot right. easier for companies yeah. to grow faster. And Interesting. they, with that scale alone, can buy the federal government. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a double-edged sword to that problem. This actually goes to something that I was thinking about earlier. How does subsidiarity sort of work in a world where we have multinational corporations and we have companies that, that work across borders that aren't tied or, or embedded within the community. Mm. So I, I guess one response to that is, is what you've just said it is actually more centralisation makes it easier for those companies to exist in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But of course, that's not necessarily a complete response to the challenge. Well, but then you go, the argument would be, well, hang on, how can, how can, how could the state of New York possibly stand up to a company like Amazon? except they totally did, mm-hmm. right? But the state um, of Tasmania is standing up against Amazon, for example. Yeah, except here's the thing. The inhabitants of Tasmania have a lot more say and a lot more influence over the, Tis- the legislature in Tasmania than they do over the federal parliament. True. What's right? this proportional representation? A bit more, a bit more Tasmanian pride. <laughs> yeah, but even there, right? You can have as much proportional representation yes. as you want. There's only 76 senators and there's only 12 of them, right? So that's 12 people yeah, yeah, yeah. and you've got to get to one of them and then that one person has to lobby a lot more other people, right? Yeah. So, yeah, sure, you might have a mismatch of power between a global multinational corporation bringing their power to bear on a particular government, but that government is also much more responsive to the preferences of their electors than a national mm-hmm. government. Right, because they actually have to live in the communities that they're mm. governing. Right, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose under a system where subsidiarity is a guiding principle, um, the state would have more power to begin with. So yeah, so they exactly. would have more regulatory yeah. power to actually deal with with problems. That are yeah, and look, maybe rights. maybe the the corporation says, well, we're not going to do business in that in that state if you don't give us what we want. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then it just falls to that if that's the preference of the citizens. Well, they got to solve that problem. Yeah. Right? And now they've also got the power at the state level mm-hmm. to go and form a solution to that problem. Queensland's a great example, right? Queensland had uh, public health care long before we introduced Medicare. Yeah, right. And the approach to it was um, it was funded by Golden Lotto. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, very innovative solution to a problem, a really good health care system. Um, but then you, you also have uh, the welfare state, pre, well pre-existed uh, social security Uh, National Social Security Services Australia and Centrelink, uh, it was organised at a community level. Mm. Insignia Financial, um, a financial company here, originally started life as the Society of Odd Fellows, which was a friendly society. Yeah, (laughs) it's a friendly society. It wasn't a government institution. It was Mm -hmm. a a group of poor people who got Mm -hmm. together and provided common insurance for each other in the event of unemployment. 
right? Nice. Yeah. Um, and rather than being taxed and having that money going into a pot where there's a billion dollars worth of churn that largely pays public service salaries mm-hmm. and, um, and lines the pockets of the mm-hmm. friends of ministers, it was, you know, people who lived in the community managing money for people who lived in the community in the event that they, they fell on hard times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. right. So, yeah, you, you may get uh, a mismatch between the, the sheer scale of a corporation and the scale of a state government, but you have um, a much greater say for local communities in the, the affairs of the common good. Yeah. Mm. Now, I'll point out quickly another uh, the other argument. So that's economies mm-hmm. of scale, right? Yeah. A bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Right? yeah, sure. The other one is transaction costs, right, mm-hmm. which is the cost of coordinating a collective action solution. Mm-hmm. The classic example of that is defence, mm-hmm. right? There's difficult, it's difficult to prosecute a war without a centralised command structure, yeah. right? Um, and that was actually the original reason for the United States government to form. Mm. Um, but the funny thing about that is even in matters of military strategy, you actually find that locally organised militias are far and away the best defensive strategy. Uh, yeah, I, I, right? found, I was reading somewhere that um, in the U- war in Ukraine that a lot of initiative taking by more localised uh, battalions was contributing to the success of the Ukrainian army. What so famously makes the Australian army so strong? It's got a strong culture of decision making by the lower levels of the organisation. Mm-hmm. Right. Why is the why is Switzerland virtually impenetrable? Because they devolve military decision making back to the to the level of the community. Everyone's required Everyone has a gun in their house. Yeah. Everyone's required to have an assault rifle in Switzerland mm-hmm. that they can take arms and defend their particular bit of Switzerland. A yeah. centralised control mechanism there. Well, a centralised provision, but the decision-making over the actual defence and the responsibility for coordinating that defence right. is, is, is... You can um, choose not to use the gun. <laughs> yeah, well, you can choose to surrender, right? But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, what you find is that standing armies are actually only really useful for invasion, right? not defence, right? So this was actually why the founding fathers of the United yeah, States every year the, the, the um, every year the U.S. military has to be renewed and right. re- reinstated, mm-hmm. reinstated because uh, the original founding fathers knew that standing armies are only ever used by sovereigns to wage war against other sovereigns. Mm. Local militias have an incentive to defend their community, but it's actually hard for them to coordinate amongst mm-hmm. each other and go and um, invade another country, mm. right? So even in defence, where you say, well, there's the transaction cost of coordinating a collective action problem. Well, okay, fine. But first of all, you've got to counterweight that transaction cost against the benefit that you get from experimentation mm. across many different smaller entities of yeah. decision-making. And, and, uh, I guess and also... Yeah. The transaction cost can be a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was right. just about to say that. That yeah. like the transaction costs are actually sometimes a good thing, not exactly. necessarily a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. that kind of leads to something I was thinking about earlier as well, which is if subsidiarity is this great thing for efficiency, it, it's actually great for governance. Why have we seen a trend over time towards more centralization? If if the decentralized decision making is actually better, is it? The fact that we, you have economies of scale and transaction costs that mean when you do centralise, you can now have a government which has a standing army and can expand its borders. Human nature. What's human nature? Human nature. In this, in this case. 
you know the old saying um, by H.L. Mencken that, that the definition of a Puritan is somebody who is deathly terrified that someone somewhere may be happy. Okay. <laughs> Human being, uh, politically engaged people are terrified by the thought that someone somewhere may disagree with them over tax or immigration policy. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a natural human instinct to accumulate power. Okay. Um, so here is actually somewhere where the postmodernists are somewhat right: is there is a will to power, and you know it's 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 natural that um, we have a particular vision of the common good. It's the same. It's the drive to become politically engaged is the same drive that that pushes people to accumulate ever more power because I believe this solution is the right one. Well, I'm going to try and implement it further and further and further. It takes mm. a very mature political thinker to realise. Um, that set aside whether I'm right about the objective, mm-hmm. how do I know that I have the right solution? Yeah. It takes a very sophisticated thinker mm-hmm. to realise that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So that's one, one aspect. One point is, um, you know, there's a, there is a natural tendency to centralise power because it's the natural outcome of the desire to become politically engaged. Okay. political yeah. engagement mm. is the exertion of power over other people and so we always naturally there's you know the other view there's this, this old I think it's Edmund Burke that um, the job of government is to constantly be pruning at the over, overgrown bush of the law right law and power tend to grow and grow naturally yeah. mm-hmm. we need to we need to be constantly looking at ways to prevent that overgrown um, but then the other thing is that you know uh, people are just a lack of political engagement. So, so one problem is too much political engagement, and the other problem is not enough political engagement. One problem is the natural tendency of people uh, of politically engaged people who really care about it to try and accumulate okay. power, mm. but then the local community hands it over, becomes less and less engaged in mm. the local politics. Um, but. Uh, one of our first guests, Al Stark, um, he does mm. a lot on citizen juries, mm. and he was talking about how and participatory democracy, and democracy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But also how once people start to get engaged, and people in these citizen juries, they weren't so interested in politics or policy. But after it, they became much more engaged, mm. and they saw that effect long term. After a year, after the experiment, they were actually, you know, were they, were they were not engaged before? Now they're very engaged. Yeah. So I guess it does have that effect of bringing non-engaged people into the discourse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure, and you look at... Um, I think we're in an, incre- an age of increasing pol- political um, interest and, mm. and, and engagement. Mm. The problem is why, why the debate is getting so vicious, I think, is partly because we've centralised so many decision-making, yeah. mm. so much decision-making. Um, we're all fighting viciously over how to implement the one solution, mm. whereas what we should be doing, and this is actually, funnily enough, why the Democrats are being hammered in the United States, is that um, a really effective way to engage politically is not to try and go for the great state office, but try and run for local government. Yeah. Start implementing mm. solutions there. And actually the Republican Party is advancing partly because they've switched this tactic, right? Mm-hmm. They're sweeping races across the United States um, at the local level 
Mm. Um, in fact, and state houses as well. There's only one more state house in the United States that needs to fall before the Republicans can change the constitution by a convention of states, right? right? Wow. Because they are focusing on this that level bad. of building. <laughs> Just to have that amount of power. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's a yeah. super majority, right? So you need three fifths of states. Or yeah, something. I think it's three fifths or four fifths, um, but you need a super majority. Jeez. But and that's that close. Yeah, it's wow. like don't don't focus on the, all this great state policy. Focus on local level mm. um, races. Uh, focus on local level positions where you can actually get hold of some power and start testing it out without breaking too much, mm. right? Um, and that's really uh, you, you look at um, a really interesting book that's it's not about subsidiarity it's about media theory but it's Neil Postman's um, Amusing Ourselves to Death he talks about before the internet age um, uh, before TV age a really common form of entertainment was people would go down to their um, you know to their local town hall and participate in debates mm. I still do Catch me in Anzac Square every Friday night. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, now mm. people don't even know this principle anymore of local government because, mm. you know, we've got yeah. mass communication, mass media, um, everything seems nationalised. Well, it seems the analogue of that is now people go on Twitter and shout at people. Yes, and why are they shouting at people on Twitter? Because, you know, it's the, the common public square, square for the whole world. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But, okay. um, so instead of actually, like... Local issues that are somewhat meaningful. You, you get debates about what Joe Rogan said on the podcast five years ago. Instead <laughs> um, of actual matters. And, right? and that becomes trending and everyone collects on that. Yeah, so think of Twitter in this way. I, I, it's Twitter, I like it when people say it's the public square, but I think people don't understand what that means. If you go back to ancient Rome, uh, the way that government was conducted in ancient Rome, apart from the stabbing and killing, um, was actually even that took most part in the forum. Yeah. Right? That's where we get the word forum right. from. Um, and the forum, you go to Rome, it was a public square in the middle mm. of the town. Um, the ancient Greek word for it was agora, right? Mm. Um, you'd go to the forum or the agora and you'd talk, you'd debate issues, and then you'd go over to the, the Curia Julia where the Senate met and you'd vote on it. Mm. Um, now, in the Roman world and in the Greek world, there were forums, public squares for each town and right. debate the issues of that particular town. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot more responsiveness uh, of the government to those debates because there were um, more positions per, popula- per head of population, right? Now, fast forward to the modern world where the modern public forum is Twitter. Mm. It's the whole world. Yeah. But there's... Uh, only um, you know first of all you don't even have a say in the global government because there isn't one mm. but yet the, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, <you> wait. <laughs> get that tinfoil let's talk about the yeah. World Economic Forum um, but there's only one president of the United States yeah. there's only one Prime Minister of Australia and it would be so much better if there was a change in the civic consciousness mm. to say well actually, there's six premiers Let's focus on state politics, mm. which, by the way, there's so much more you can do at that level anyway, because you've got um, power over health, mm. education, mm. Um, police, judiciary, a lot of energy policy. Yeah. Um, you know, said Tyrone Tassie again. Just <laughs> yeah. Look, and 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 
Tasmania famously joined the Federation not because they wanted to surrender to Canberra, but because they wanted access to Canberra's resources, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They still we love want... our GST, man. It's two-thirds <laughs> of the revenue for this budget. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, a, it's about two-thirds of Queensland's budget now, too. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the vision that, um, of, of subsidiarity is people going to their local town hall and discussing issues that are most relevant to the community and bringing so much more information and knowledge to mm. the debate about the particular circumstances of the city mm. than a far-off bureaucrat in Canberra can possibly know or a far-off parliamentarian in yeah. Canberra can possibly know trying to balance the needs of 25 million people. Well, yeah. let's implement a solution for mm. 3 million yeah, right. yeah. living in Brisbane. Yeah. Let's implement a solution for 5 million living in Queensland. Um, and you get much better solutions that way. You know, Queensland was, mm. was uh, the, the case study that got me super interested in state economic policy making was, um, was why was Queensland such a high growth? You guys are a bit young to remember it, but in the 90s, we had something like 1,500 new families moving to Queensland a week. Yeah, right. Why? Well, a key aspect of that was the Queensland government realised that Queensland is far too big and far too diverse mm. for infrastructure policy to be made in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So the state government had a policy of taking mining royalties and using them to subsidise on a first-come, first-served basis 40% of any local government infrastructure project, no questions asked. Right. right. What was the effect of that? Well, it put a lot of resources in, and decision-making power in the hands of people who knew their community better mm. than that the state government. Yeah. If you go through Queensland today, uh, through regional Queensland, you'll see that the infrastructure... That policy was ended by Anna Bly in 2007. It's the exact moment, interestingly, that Queensland's share of national employment starts falling. If you go through regional Queensland today, you'll see that the, uh, the quality of the infrastructure is astounding for the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and since then, all decision-making has been centralised back in Brisbane mm-hmm. and increasingly they're shipping off decisions to, to Canberra. Yeah, right. Um, but, yeah... Mm. Right. So, um, where have we seen the process of decentralisation and subsidiarity gone wrong? Well, okay, so it's important to define what gone wrong means. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, because most people see a lack of uniformity as, it, as something going wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. like um, espousing to the principle of subsidiarity, but... You know when they implement it, it's just not yeah. Working. So well, um, oh, okay. Or oh, wait, how are you gonna? Think I, I was about imagining it? Uh, just leading to bad outcomes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, okay. Too. So one of those is obviously the vertical fiscal imbalance, right? So so much responsibility is placed on the states to deliver services in Australia, but they've got no pe- capability yeah. to raise revenues, right? Right. So, okay. But that's not a, that's um, that's not so much a. Uh, a a misapplication of subsidiarity is a breaking of the principle of subsidiarity, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Taking power away from the people who who mm-hmm. um, who income tax exactly, yeah. and specifically it not being handed back after the Second World War. That yes. was the perversion. Um, if you if you want to look more at um, this point of when can subsidiarity go wrong in terms of it's it's um, not uniformity. It's you. The most common argument you hear people run is the Holy Roman Empire or the Italy 
argument, okay. right? Which is before you had a strong central German government emerge in 1871 or a strong central Italian government emerge in 1861, um, similar arguments apply to like ancient China. Right, like you the, had nothing, the warring states kind of Yeah, thing. you had warring states, right? Well, actually, that's not actually an argument against subsidiarity, right? That's an argument against government and centralised militaries, right? Because what happened is you replaced smaller scale wars between states with large scale world wars. Yeah. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's not an argument against subsidiarity. In fact, subsidiarity would say, well, hang on, you just made it a hell of a lot easier to organize a massive arg- army that can invade France. Mm. It's no accident that Bismarck, you know, unites the states of Germany and then immediately invades France. Yeah. All right. Um, and again, and again. And again, and again. Right? <laughs> Uh, you know, you lose the debate as soon as you refer to Hitler, but mm. one of the first things Hitler does upon assuming power is abolish the German states. Yeah, right. right. Um, and also with Lenin, like, at the start of the of Russian Revolution, all power to the Soviets, but then as soon as he takes power, takes back that power. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and one of the first things that the Americans do in writing the basic law of Germany to this day is, you cannot abolish the German states. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Channeling those. So that argument, that, and look, if you say, you can, oh, look, um, another argument is the Pax Romana or the Pax Britannia or the Pax Americana. Large empires sustain mm-hmm. peace. Well, actually, if you look at the historical record, the Pax Romana, well, you might get peace within the borders of the empire, but the famously the Temple of Jupiter, the doors mm-hmm. were only closed for like three years during Caesar Augustus. There were constant bloody wars mm-hmm. at the frontiers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go and ask any person who's got a, a view of colonization. You know, go ask any post-colonial studies scholar about the Pax Britannia. Yeah. Go ask anyone in the Middle East about um, what they think about the Pax yeah. Americana. Which yeah. is another interesting application of subsidiarity. Like it, it yeah. really seems to apply to a lot of conventionally right and, and left-leaning schools of thought exactly. in that, like self-sufficiency and what's the word I'm looking for? Self-determination. Self-determination. Exactly. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, or self-determination for indigenous communities, self-determination for formerly colonial states. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, why, does the Nor- why did the Northern Territory demand their own legislature? Right? Mm. They're not saying, oh, we want, we want national government here. No, we want the same rights as the, as the states. Mm. Right? Um, but, you know, so, so there's that argument about, oh, if you don't have a centralised power, bloodshed will break out. Well, actually, if you have a centralised power, bloodshed breaks out. It's just on a much larger scale and yeah. it's a much more efficient killing machine. Mm. So, in fact, you know, the subsidiarity argument presents transaction costs to mm. coordinating bloodshed. Um, yeah. Genocide is a lot harder mm. when you do it on a scale. Look at the Holy Roman Empire, 30 years' is war a huge amount of the bloodshed of that war is created when the Swedes get involved, a centralised state gets involved mm-hmm. in, in the war. Mm. Um, the best example of subsidiarity goes, going wrong is when states' rights are being used to perpetuate an objective moral evil. Right? right. So the, This comes to something I was going to say, so go on. The classic example I think you might have been thinking of is slavery in the United States. Yeah. yeah. Or if you've got... Uh, another opinion, you know, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion to term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be returned to the states. Mm. So again, though, the same issue holds as at the national level. Think about 
apartheid South Africa or the one-child policy in mm. China, objective moral evils. Mm. That's not an argument against subsidiarity. In fact, subsidiarity tends to limit the evil. Mm. All right, that's an argument against um, the abuse of government power. Sure. If you fa- if you're faced with that, okay, fine. That might be they might be co-opting. Um, states' rights to perpetuate an objective moral evil. That's mm. uh, a problem with the government that is in power. They're not mm. necessarily a problem with subsidiarity. And there you've got the standard three options. You can declare war and impose a new war- law by force. You can work within the jurisdiction to change the law. Or you can evacuate those who wish to be evacuated to other jurisdictions. But mm. either way, you got to, uh, that's not necessarily an argument against subsidiarity. That's an argument mm. against the abuse of power. And the, that abuse under a subsidiary, a subsidiary, a subs, subsidiary a form of government that embraces subsidiarity, that <laughs> evil is limited to a state rather than perpetuated at a national yeah. level or um, an imperial level. So that's a good response to the problem of states perpetuating evils. Um, but you also talk about subsidiarity applying to communities and then families. Mm. Let's say we, we have a, a community which is dominated by some kind of cult. Uh, So very commanding, people aren't really imagining alternatives to their way of life, but some very bad thing that's going on there. Does that community have have the right to be making decisions for that community because everyone agrees? And I guess, similarly, does subsidiarity apply only to matters of public policy or does it also apply to things like ethical norms? Oh, for sure. Yes. 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 I mean, that's the point of subsidiarity is is you're really basing government on the evolution of cooperation rather than the imposing of coercion. Yeah. So it does seem to endorse a kind of moral relativism in that case. Well, it's, you can say... Where it's it's that community's choice. You could say moral relativism. You could also say experimentalism. Yeah. Right. And is it better that we impose there's always limit cases right Mm. but the limit case does not necessarily negate the principle as as a whole right the exception doesn't necessarily invalidate the rule Mm. and this gets to the 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 point of as possible right so subsidiarity is there's a qualifier there as possible Mm. now you have the difficulty in any form of government what is the underlying moral structure yeah and then you get to the question of, is that moral structure best decided? Is the moral structure that we adhere to best decided at the national level, mm-hmm. international level, or at the local level? Mm-hmm. All right? Because I have a particular view of the natural law. Yeah. I imagine I would probably disagree. And you would probably disagree with it. Yeah. Okay. Now, you have a question of how egregious mm-hmm. is, your, is, the, is, is the disagreement? Mm. Right? Which is always hard to quantify because how do you... <laughs> right. Yeah. And at that point, we're arguing over what is the best way to reconcile this irreconcilable difference. Mm-hmm. Is, the, is the best way for me to take over the state government and impose power from the top down? Who knows? Maybe. Or is it better for me and you to argue it out mm-hmm. and to have jurisdiction over our individual um, solutions? Mm-hmm. to the problem of what is the natural law. So, so it's not necessarily moral relativism, but rather 
people experimenting different ways of get getting to the truth and discovering more. Yeah, and discovering. So it doesn't yeah, necessarily. It's, it's a better way of discovering it. Basically. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you can take a moral relativistic. This kind of goes to the cutting across left and right thing, mm. right? Because mm. it goes to. Uh, you can uh, subsidiarity is kind of agnostic on the question of is there a natural law? Yeah. Because if there is a natural law, then subsidiarity provides a better way to discover it because mm-hmm. you try things out, see which communities flourish and which don't. Mm. Cults tend not to. Mm. Or maybe if, if there is no moral relativism, then who uh, subsidiarity enables best the pursuit of that which you think is mm. the moral good. Mm. So, and and that was the formation of communities which agree. Yeah, but um, you always have limit cases, right? Yeah. And those limit cases, it's it's it just becomes a question of by what process are we going to reconcile an irreconcilable difference? Yeah. Are we going to re- reconcile it by the imposition of force? And if we're going to reconcile something by the imposition of force, which level of government should impos- impose that force? Mm. A big thing that um talking about was that like how important it is for the ability of people to vote with their feet. So on the federal level, would you say that there's need for like federal government to enforce, say, certain principles like freedom of speech, freedom of association, or should it just be left to the state level? Well, that then comes back to, do you think that freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion are moral absolutes? Yeah. Okay. Right? Um, but it's kind of... The, the question there is, should the federal government be uh, guaranteeing absolute um, free exchange of citizenry between the states, freedom of movement between the states? Yeah. And in a way, it's kind of moot because... Well, it's been moot in the era of COVID anyway, but uh, it's hung with a yes. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of moot because if power is devolved back to these more local levels, um, all I have to do is walk over to the next community, mm-hmm. right? And you need serious resources to police a border completely, yeah. right? If you go to the limit case, you f- you you do an underground railroad between the states, mm-hmm. right? But so is there an argument for the federal uh, for the federal government to um, to ensure freedom of movement between the states? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, it's better for that decision to be built from the ground up right, rather okay. than imposed from the top down. Okay. Um, but even if it's not guaranteed by the federal government, it's a lot easier for freedom of movement to be guaranteed by uh, under a subsidiary form of government than mm. under a uniform yeah. form of government. Yeah. We've actually got to get out here in four minutes so yeah. <laughs> we'll have to wrap up we only got the room booked I'll leave my follow ups that's okay yeah um, but final question what would you recommend top book that PPE students should read or the general audience should read not a book but a paper written by Eleanor Ostrom okay and it's her Nobel Prize acceptance speech called Beyond Markets and States Polycentric Governance of Complex Economic Systems mm-hmm. um, it's published in the American Economic Review in 2010 she later fleshed it out into a, into a longer book. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure she did a speech on it. She, um, I forget. A lecture? No, no, no. It was on YouTube because I was listening to a Nobel. Yeah, that's a Nobel Prize. Yeah, 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 yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, that's, she later fleshed it out into a fuller book if you want to read that, Understanding mm-hmm. Institutional Diversity. But, you know, start with the paper. Mm-hmm. And it's purely scientific. Um, it's really from a purely scientific perspective that I think establishes the argument 
for polycentricity and subsidiarity as an nice. application of that very firmly. And from there, you can start adopting other views, like that's a very instrumentalist view, then you can start investigating mm-hmm. the, the Catholic, Catholic social teaching view, which is a much more organic mm-hmm. interpretation yep. of the principle or, um, or uh, you know, the Federalist Papers or, mm-hmm. or so, so on. So it kind of gives you like an opening to all these different avenues you can that's go right. down. Yeah. Yeah. So start with the paper. Yeah. And yeah. It's a very readable paper. And um, okay. the PPE students, uh, Ostrom, is included in the first year PPE course yeah. as one of the course thinkers. Um, and I think it's either a chapter from the book that came from that paper or the paper itself. Mm. It's an excerpt, which is a reading for that week. Yeah, yeah. It was a while ago. Yeah, thank, um, you. thank you, Ryan Walter. Yeah, <laughs> good night. Yeah, for including her. Awesome. Thank okay. you very much, Brendan. Thanks, lads. Great to have you on. Pillar Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by the PPE Society's very own Isaac Haynes. Given this episode was largely theoretical in nature, there's not much that needs to be fact-checked from me. However, if you have any corrections or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. And you can get in touch through the usual channels, the UQPPE Society's Facebook page or our email, publications.uqppes at gmail.com. As usual, all relevant references, including a link to Brendan's Substack, where he writes about stuff like this and more strictly economic subjects, are in the episode description. Pillar Talk will be back soon. First, with a recording of George Brandis's lecture for the UQPPE Society, entitled Reflections on Politics and Diplomacy and then his podcast episode, hosted by Will and Ollie. I'll see you then.